Hello and welcome to the next episode of the podcast, a cannabis podcast for budding enthusiasts. As always, this episode was brought to you by Seeds Here Now. You know them, they're the best in the seed game, guaranteed not on germination but on satisfaction as well. As well as 420 Australia, your premier store for 420 lifestyle and apparel. And finally, Organic Gardening Solutions, your one-stop shop for all those gardening needs. On this episode, we're joined by the one and only Odie of Homegrown Natural Wonders. Talking all things Homegrown Natural Wonders, breeding, time wreck males, and more. Let's get into it. Alrighty, so a huge hello, thank you, and welcome to Odie of Homegrown Natural Wonders. Thanks so much for joining us today. Well, hello there. How are you doing today? I'm doing good. So, first question, what are you currently smoking on? Right at the moment, I just loaded up a bowl of uh, Doctor Who from Geek Farms, the uh, Master Cut. It's one of my faves to go to. It's very relaxing. You know, the Doctor Who is very high immersing, so it's I find it really relaxing. You just jumped straight to one of my questions. So, one of the, one of the biggest things I wanted to ask you. I think a lot of people, including myself, gained a lot of familiarity with your brand through the exposure that Geek Mike gave you guys kind of with that Doctor Who cut. So, the question is, how impactful has it been to have something like that happen to your brand to kind of have a really good grower find this killer cut and run with it? Well, pretty good. Um, Doctor Who is definitely one of our top sellers. Um, yeah, everybody that grows it seems to like it. Um, there's quite a bit of it around. And uh, yeah, no, I'm, I'm, I'm a huge fan of Geek Farms. We're obviously really good friends. And uh, yeah, I'm, I'm excited for all their success and future success as well as I know he is for ours as well. So did the success of the Doctor Who kind of immediately make it a candidate in your mind for like maybe a male in future breeding crosses or was it not the immediate thought? No, it was definitely an immediate thought. Um, actually, the one that came up with the whole Doctor Who thing and did the original Doctor Who cross was my uh, son Donovan. Um, him and my, him and his brother, my oldest son um, Ray, they uh, got together and did this whole thing and planned out all kinds of plants that you know we had to make stuff multiple times before we got to their end game of what they wanted it to be. So as we started, you know, cruising through that, yeah. We knew we'd always want a Doctor Who male, and we've picked one now. Haha, uh-huh, okay. And so, what type of females do you think would pair well with Doctor Who? So, actually, um, we just recently did a bunch of crosses with our Doctor Who male. Um, 17 different strains, different moms we crossed it to. Uh, SFV, Lemon G, um, just a whole slew of... Uh, standard old goodies, you know, old cuts and whatnots. And uh, most of them came out pretty well. Um, the Doctor Who male that we picked uh, was chosen for specific structure and smell that it had. And uh, we're wanting to do the Doctor Who down to about an F5, F6 to get to where our, the actual what the Doctor Who is going to be when it's completed, you know, kind of like how it regener- how the Doctor regenerates all the time, right? Um I like that. So um, he he was picked for how close he was resembled the grape high chew cut that we run. Um, it uh, very sweet, very grapey, um, and it's very dominant in the crosses that we saw. It was kind of interesting. 
we even we even crossed him to a uh, form cut cookies. The one of my friends asked me if I would do so. There you go. And so, just as a quick little side question, out of all the cookies, which one's your favorite? Um, honestly, I'm not a big cookies fan. Um, I would not have. I've never grown cookies. Um, I would not have done the cross if my friend would not have asked me. There so he's obviously, obviously he's a pretty good, pretty close friend. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Okay, and so just as another little cookies question, do you feel like at this point it's kind of been able to solidify itself as one of those elite clones, or do you think it's still just kind of like a hypey thing? Well, you know, it's probably an elite clone. Sure, it definitely is in certain circles, especially here in California. Um, you know, a lot of there's a lot of places that are cookies. Everybody likes the cookies, and don't get me wrong, the cookie dough flavor is nice. Um, I only kind of wish that some of them produced better, um, the different cuts, right? So automatically you want to find a male that's going to add your size and your weight and, you know, try to keep the flavor. Um, but instead of hitting them, yeah, instead of, I'm just not a big fan of it. It was, uh, I was something that I was offered at at a very early age when it came out and turned it down and haven't grown it since. I've never grown it actually. There you go. Well, on that note, early age, let's take us back. What was your first experience with cannabis? <laughs> wow. Seven, eight years old, probably. Um, smoking uh, cannabis with a cousin of mine, actually. Um, our parents grew, um, and uh, it was all over and all around. You know, we're talking the 70s, so it was at that point in time in the, in the, family, the family that I was in, and there was plenty abundant and it wasn't like my parents didn't know that I was smoking, but my cousin and I sure were taking some to smoke. So, yeah. Uh-huh, there you go. And do you know what strains there were back then or it was just whatever? Oh, yeah. It, just, it was just whatever. You know, yeah, we had no clue. Um, we're never really in on those conversations really to know what was what. Uh, we found the hash stash every now and again. You know, that was always nice. Um, but, yeah, normally just buds here and there. They were definitely nothing like what we smoke today, looking at least. Yeah, okay. And so what was the progression to you becoming a grower yourself? Um, lived with my mom for a while and then uh, hit teenage years. She couldn't handle me anymore, so she sent me to my father's at the age of 14 who was living in northern Idaho and growing – uh, garage fulls of marijuana. So he kind of handed me a book and said, get up in the attic, start doing this, start doing that. And that pretty much started me growing was when I was 14. Nice. And which book did he give you? Yeah. <sighs> you know, um, right off the top of my head, I don't remember, but it's one of the old class. It's, it's an old classic. Yeah. I, I don't remember right at the moment. Yeah, maybe like an R.C. Clark thing or something. Um, no, it was um, Frank, Mel Frank and uh, Rosen. I want to say it was Rosenthal, but um, Grower's Bible. Yeah, okay. Like a 1982 version or something like that. It had a big old pot, it had a big old bud cola on the front pitch, on the front cover. And yeah, I had that book for a long time. Cool. Yeah, that's a good good mentor. I actually uh, refound it at Powell, Powell's Books there in uh, Portland, 
and in the used book section and bought it for my father so he could have it back. <laughs> That's neat full circle. So, during those early days when you were growing, was there any notable strains that went around in your area or was it just really everything wasn't having names at that point? Well, and we were, I was living in uh, northern Idaho at the point in time and skunk was king. I mean, there was there were several really good strains, not really any names with much of them. Um, but yeah, I mean, I was still in junior high, so we weren't really that concerned with it. We were more concerned that five bags later and you're still smelling it and pretty ridiculous to walk anywhere with it. Yeah. So, did you have any recollections of the roadkill skunk or what are your thoughts on it in general? Um, skunk, my, yeah, no, I, I, lo- I love skunk. I've been searching for it ever since I've left Idaho. Um, the closest thing that I've seen is what Duke is putting out. And I think that if anybody's going to find the old old school roadkill, it's going to be him. They have it. And do you, there's there's a lot of kind of discussion around the whole idea, and something which I'm interested in is the idea that maybe there was not necessarily one roadkill skunk, but it was more of kind of like a, a profile which maybe popped up in one or two different strains. Do you think there's any maybe credence to that, or do you think no, it was very much just one clone? Yeah, no, I would totally agree with that. Um, myself, I kind of look back to uh, the popular strains and go back a year or two and see what war was happening. And most likely that's where it came from, is whatever region we were having a war in. Yeah, okay, interesting. So what are your thoughts on the land races uh, in terms of like, would you consider working them or no? Nah? Um, I have a good buddy too. He's doing a bunch of work with some land races right now. We've all donated a bunch of land race seed stock that we had so that he could uh, start working with that. Um, yeah, you know, so I think that the plant has used us to progress itself along as most things do, right? I mean, we take it everywhere. We've given it life and existence and we've done a lot for the plant as far as the plant also does a lot for us. Don't get me wrong in the least bit. Um, but it's manipulated us to where we do all this crazy stuff for it. And uh, is it progression the way that it should be uh, the, with us doing all the interbreeding and crossbreeding and multi-quad polyprop, you know, polybreeding and all that? Um, you know, I, I think that it's progressing away as long as what you're making is better than what it was. Um, but to work with land races... A lot of land races are run really long, and uh, you know, there's a reason why. The, when you look at a picture of the buds in the high times from the '70s, and you look at a picture of the buds from the high times now, it's a huge difference. Which would you rather? You know, it's which would you rather smoke? First off, now granted, the land races are nice. They're very unique highs, very unique flavors, um, but. Nowadays, we're more about the strong potencies and maybe even stronger or more isolated flavors. Um, but yeah, to work with some land races, I have a few IBLs in stock and uh, we play with them every now and again. But uh, that's that's a long project because you need to, you know, outcross. Land races are strong. You see those for, and IBLs are strong. You see those for generations down the line, obviously. But what characteristics are you looking for and what characteristics do you want to, to grab from it and get it to express? 
Well, I guess it begs the question, right? What would you like to bring to the game? Because I think the modern criticism of cannabis is that there's this kind of same-same amongst everything and that there's also like this ceiling where you can only get so high, whereas a lot of people would argue that with certain land races, you would just, you know, the more you smoke, the, the further you would go. Are those the type of things you would be looking to bring into modern crosses? Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, I've, you know, when when people describe that, and I remember, you know, I started smoking fairly young, so I started smoking mid to late seventies. Um, do I remember everything? No. Do I know all the names? No. Um, but I do remember a lot of the effects and a lot of the ways that it made me feel, um, and I'm able to use that to uh, kind of guide me in what I what, what my memory is. So if I could find the land races from back then that made me feel that way, absolutely, I'd love to play with them. Because, yeah, they were, you know, but then again, was it my age? Was it because I had nothing else to compare it to? You know, that all comes into a factor as well. But, um, yeah, I would like to uh, definitely get, there are some land races that I would like to play with if I could find, you know, true seeds of. And which ones are they? <laughs> more of your Afghanicas, more of your, your Hindu mountains areas, more Indicas. I'm more of an Indica guy. Um, I'm not much into the sativas. Yeah, okay. Um, you may or may not have heard about this. It's kind of been on Instagram. I got tagged in it a few times. There's kind of been some talks about like the origins of the Triangle Kush having come out recently and basically you know to cut a long story short it's meant to be some old school cali strain called emerald triangle crossed to hindu kush i don't suppose you've heard about this kind of little saga at all and if so if not what do you think about you know kind of that as a potential genetics do you see any hindu kush in the triangle kush well you know i actually i have heard a little bit read a little bit about that my kind of thoughts on that is that they're just now coming out with that information mm-hmm. right yeah. you know um, all of a sudden you just woke up, oh yeah, we crossed that to this and created this. Yeah, you know, I don't know. That's that's kind of hard to swallow. Um, the people that are saying it though, um, you know, I know them and uh, they have done a lot of things. You know, there's a lot of good strains that they've done. Um, so I don't know, but having, you know, um, we just had Chrome over at the garden here a couple of days back looking at some of their genetics that we just germinated over there and uh you know he's pretty infamous for the tk and a lot of the tk crosses and stuff so um i didn't talk with him about it but i do know what you're talking about and there's a couple of things that you know come to question in my head yeah okay so i think people are going to be wondering out of the swamp boys gear which ones did you decide to germ <laughs> Oh, good golly. I don't have the list with me. So we did two different germinations of seeds. The first one was 6,300 seeds. The next one was 2,800 seeds. Right. So it was several breeders and several strains. Unfortunately, I could not rattle them off without having my list in front of me. Yeah. Um, I could tell you some of the breeders, but I couldn't definitely tell you all the strains. Yeah, I don't think anyone would expect you to remember with a list that big. But the question which jumps to mind is, how many seeds of each strain would you like to run when you do a pheno hunt of that size? A hundred, at least a hundred. Great answer. 
You know, um, that way you're getting 50 to 60 females to look at. Um, pretty harsh, you know, they fall over. We don't stick them up. It's gladiator school when you're a seedling. Um, we don't baby them in any way, shape, or form and survival of the fittest. Out of all those seeds, we came back with 3,700 females that we looked through and um, have picked maybe 400 to bring back out of to reveg. Wow, yeah, because that was going to be my next question. When you do a pheno hunt of that size, how long does it take you to actually discern the winner? Because as you just kind of implied, there's probably going to be a lot that are really neck and neck at that end point. It's like, hard, you got to do them again and again type of thing. Most definitely. Um, there are several that are neck to neck. Um, you know, and that's the thing is you grow them out to, to almost completion before you want to reveg them or clone them and reveg them or however so that you can see all of its final traits. Um, but yeah, it's really close on a lot of them. Um, one of them might have just a little bit better structure or, you know, because it got bent hair or something or restrained hair, maybe it didn't perform as well as it could have. Um, and you think maybe it performed better next time. So it's two, pretty much three, within three runs, we'll be down to maybe 1% of the 400. So maybe 40 strains. Wow. And and how many end keepers would you ideally like to keep at the end of it all? That's rough at that point. That's when you're getting <laughs> down to the pretty nitty gritty. Um, you know, so, I mean, because we've got a lot of Canarado, we've got a lot of Karma, we've got a lot of Swamp Boys, we've got Oni, we've got, I mean, you know, a whole bunch of the great the great breeders out there that we're, that we're uh, privileged enough to germinate a lot of seeds of. Um, and uh, they are all just so fantastic. It's really hard to pick one, you know. I would rather windle it down to maybe two or three per breeder than um, just two or three strains overall kind of a thing. Um, just oh, yeah. because, you know, because a breeder is more of a, more of an artist and, you know, they're, they've painted this picture for you to kind of color in. So, um I would definitely, I, I think I'm, I'm, I'm shooting for that rap. We haven't completely decided all that way yet. Um, but yeah, that's kind of where I'm thinking. And so the end goal of doing this big pheno hunt, besides obviously having the clone, is it to kind of offer that to the market or more so as a breeding queen? Oh, no, it's for market. Um, it's um, We're doing this at one of our uh, clients' um, facility. And, um, yeah, it's totally for their market, for them to be able to bring to the market and have variety and diversity. Yeah, nice. That's a great answer. And so one of the things I'm thinking about and I often hear as like a complex issue, so to speak, is the the idea of how people want more sativa being offered and more variety along those lines. But there's a whole bunch of issues that come along with that in regards to price points, flower times, all things like that. What's your stance? Do you feel like people are asking for something, but they're not willing to buy it on the other hand? Like, you know, how do you feel about it all? Oh, yeah, no, absolutely. Um, people talk about land races, but most land races, most land race sativas are going to take you 16 to 20 something weeks to finish. Um, unfortunately, on a production scale type of a model, that just really doesn't work because there's nobody out there in a the market that will pay two to three times the amount for the same eighth. If you're already complaining about paying, 30 or $40 for, for an eighth from the market. And now all of a sudden it's 60 to 
you know, $120 for that same eighth just because it's a land race or something to that effect. Um, at this point in time, the market is not there for it. It would be uh, a little di- I think that it is possible in the future to definitely see a craft style market for it, um, which is a big thing to come yet. I think the whole craft thing is going to stick around for a while. And, um, you know, the big scale people, it's hard for them to do craft. Yeah, of course. And so, in regards to the craft market, do you think that that's going like it's still kind of to emerge? Um, it just depends on where you're at. Yeah. Right. Um, is it in Oregon? Craft market is king. Um, that's I think I feel that that's you know, and uh, price point I feel kind of proves that. Um, most pounds in Oregon are twelve to sixteen hundred for indoor. Um, if you are considered craft and you have the brand and you have the recognition of said craft, you're still getting twenty four, twenty six hundred dollars a pound. It hasn't really changed that much. Um, but if you don't have that brand and if you don't have something special, um, yeah, you know, here in California, this market here is a lot different. You know, a lot. It depends on where you're at. Some parts of it, they want fruit. Some parts, they want gas. The other parts, they want cookies. So you got to be able to appease all of those on a larger scale market. Um, But as far as craft for many of the large guys, yeah, um, you'll probably see some coming. Um, But uh, I think that it'll take a little bit for everybody to dial it in. Yeah. So, I mean perfect segue on that issue of craft cannabis how do you feel i'm sure you've heard about it uh, about the infamous hundred dollar eighths of mac we spoke to aficionado leo not long ago and he said he thinks that's the biggest thing that's happened in the cannabis industry in a while and it's kind of maybe not getting the recognition it should what do you feel about the whole issue and maybe as an extension of that how do you feel about kind of mac uh, sorry caps kind of general unhappiness with the pricing of it well, you know, I look at it as anything else. It's only worth as much as you get somebody to pay for it. So if somebody's willing to pay it, then why not? That's, you know, I, it's sad to look at it that way, but that's kind of where it's at. Um, I could go buy a $10,000 bottle of wine or I could go buy a $100 bottle of wine. They're both probably going to get me just about as drunk. Yeah, okay. And so how do you feel about, like, the idea of, you wouldn't want, say, uh, one of your strains reaching a certain price point with the implication being it's kind of like price gouging at that point? Um, You know, that would be for the farm to decide at that point in time. We don't really, um, you know, we're we're a seed company. Once you buy the seeds, you do with it what you want. You find something that people are willing to pay that much for. Once again, if you can get it, why wouldn't you? I see. I, I can see both sides of it because you know that it seems ridiculous, a hundred dollars an eighth. But once again, you don't have to buy it. Yeah, yeah. I, I kind of feel the same in a lot of regards, like in terms of that pure capitalist view on things. Right, right. Yeah, you know, that's it works in every other market. It's going to wind up being the same in this. You know, look at how much do some Nikes go for. I mean. Yeah, or even just expensive cars. Right, exactly. You know, what is it, Mercedes or uh, 
Volvo is the safest car out there, but not everybody drives one. Yeah. Let's uh, rewind back for a moment. I would love to know, what was your first breeding project and how did you get into breeding in general? Oh, good golly. Um, so, a friend of mine and I had a house in Colorado in the early 90s. Um, we've been growing hash plant and doing quite well with it. Um, got a hold of some seeds out of California, of some California red hair. And uh, we popped the seeds um, chose between a couple of different mouths and used those to pollinate a couple of the uh, hash plant. Huh. And so did you end up growing out the offspring? We did. We uh, only wound up getting a couple hundred seeds and we popped the majority of them but didn't necessarily really find anything all that great. Okay. And what do you think that is? Do you think that maybe is because like uh, the genetics back then just weren't as kind of refined as they are these days? Um, no, I would think that they were more, um, more so refined than now they're a little bit more, you know, for lack of a better word, bastardized out. Um, but, uh, the, um, I think that, uh, it was, a, it was a land race that we hit it to and the land race was just so dominant that it overrode the hash plant. Um, but the hash plant, you know, back then it was, a super fast plant. So we had a hash plant that we could take a clone within a week. It had roots and it went right on the flood table. Six weeks in flower, chop it down a week to dry. Once again, we're in Colorado. So in an eight week cycle from clone to done, um, we wanted to find something that would maybe, you know, add a little bit more to it. But yeah, that wasn't the ticket. Interesting. And so when you say hash plant, is it just like, it's just any old hash plant or is it like a specific one you're referring to? Um, it came to us as a hash plant, you know. Um, shortly after that is when the Arcata cut came to us, train wreck. The Arcata cut train wreck came to us a little while after that, and we all grew that for a long time. But, uh, yeah, the hash plant was what we all grew for quite a while, 92, 93-ish there in Denver. Okay. And so I don't suppose it might have been the Skelly hash plant? It's a very good possibility. I'm not exactly sure. Interesting. I mean, I don't suppose you've tried Skelly more recently since she's kind of made her reemergence. I have not. So yeah, I wouldn't have any reference. All right, we'll have to line that up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, that'd be great. Cool. Yeah, that's that's insanely fast flowering time. In your opinion, you know, do you think it was truly done that quickly, or maybe you were cutting corners a little bit? Yeah, it might have needed to go a little longer, but we were doing flood tables and pushing everything right along. You know, that was yeah. back in the day, the simple salts in the tanks and ripped and let her go, you know. Um, yeah, it maybe needed to go seven or eight. I could totally see that. But, yeah. Okay, cool. And so, do you grow organically nowadays or are you still a salt guy? Or Oh, no, it's all organics. Um, we mix most of our soils. Um, we use a few things out of a bottle, but they all say organics on them. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, you can take that as far as you can throw it. Um, we pay extra for water, obviously, but, uh, <laughs> you know, um, yeah, so we, we try to stay pretty organic. We don't play with salts that much, but Yeah. Cool. And do you feel like it's just kind of a personal preference thing or do you feel like it's just truly like, you know, a superior option? Like, Yeah, no, I think, uh, you know, if you want mass, you're going to do salts. If you want flavor, you're going to do organics. 
Okay, interesting. We've heard some guests in the past argue that if you kind of, you know, really on point, so to speak, you can get the the yields to be quite on par with the hydro guys. Do you feel like that's maybe a little bit stretching the truth or that that is accurate? You know, I don't know. You know, I'll refer back to uh, Geek Farms. They do about two and a half to three a light with that Doctor Who, and that's all organic soil that they create themselves. Yeah, sounds like it's matching it. I mean, so, you know, I, I have plenty of friends that just smash, do fantastic on organic soils. Um, I just think that with a good cocoa and salt system, you can feed 15, 20 times a day, you're going to crush. That's, there's no, you know, the more food you can get it to uptake, the bigger it's going to get. It's basic physics. Yeah, for sure. So, on the issue of growing, grow lights, what are your preferred brand? You know, it seems like there's new technologies ever constantly emerging. What are you currently using? Yeah, we jumped on that Gavita train in the very beginning, kind of been riding it ever since. I'm a big fan of the Gavitas. Cool, cool. And so, like just uh, the 1000 double ends or which ones are you rocking? Yeah, we run the 1000 double ends because we bought them way back in the beginning before they had the 750s. Would you use the 750s if you could? Um, absolutely. Uh, before we went to the uh, Gavita 1000s, we went we, we ran 600s um, due to the fact that instead of 6000s, I would stuff in 10 or 11 or 12 600s to get to the same point pretty much was power. So therefore you just have more points of light and you, they run a lot cooler so you can run the plants a lot closer or run them a lot closer to the plants. And so just to kind of this idea put forward by DJ Short is that like metal halides brings more flavor, HPS brings more yield, or maybe it wasn't DJ Short specifically, but he's the one who I remembered bringing it up initially. Do you agree with that? And if so, what type of system do you use? Like a mixed, a pure, how do you do it? You know, so what I've learned from doing different mixed spectrum rooms is that a 50-50 is usually pretty good. Um, you know, but you'll get certain strains that under the blue light, they'll show different colors um, to wear under the halogen, they won't. So now you got a bud that's half, say, pink-haired and the other half of it's white-haired because it's getting the metal halide or it's getting the, H, the, the HPS, right? Um the metal halide, though, does from blue light promotes vegetative growth. So you wind up getting a leafier, more open product, I feel. Um, so, you know, a 50-50 mix. But now with the ceramics and all that stuff, I haven't played with the ceramics that much. Um, but I see a lot of people throwing those in nowadays as well instead of the metal halides. So I think – I don't know that – uh, Flavor-wise on the blues, probably so, um, just because it's more of the, the, the cool color. Um, it's more of promoting vegetative growth. But I don't know for sure. Yeah. Okay. So, if we kind of just jump back to that initial story where you had the hash plant and you did the pollination... At that time, were there any kind of breeders you were looking up to or was everyone just kind of self-sufficient and keeping to themselves yeah pretty self-sufficient keeping to themselves um high times cups had just kind of started over in amsterdam right so uh you know the big guys at that point obviously were uh greenhouse um 
and Adam Dunn was doing quite well back then. Um, you know, Cincy Seeds, there's there a few different seed companies you could get, but everybody was too scared to order them, especially out of the back of High Times or Column. You know, I mean, that was still back. We would get stuff at the grocery store and then go camping for a three-day weekend before we went anywhere kind of thing, you know, borrow somebody's car, meet them at a campsite to grab your, your nutrients and all that stuff that you needed for the next month. Um, it was still pretty pretty harsh in the early 90s, late 80s. So it was definitely a little bit more to yourself. Okay. And so did you go to like, you know, those extra efforts to try to throw the, you know, cops off your trail or did you kind of always view it as a bit of paranoia? Oh, no, um, definitely. We would, I spent, I didn't mind spending time in the mountains. <laughs> so that was a bonus anyways, right? An excuse to go fishing for the weekend. Um, you know, yeah, it was just the way that I was raised because my father even was the same way. I mean, anytime he would order stuff, we lived in northern Idaho, so the panhandle, so we would go over to Spokane to buy all of our nutrients or anything like that. And we'd only go to garden stores, you know, a long ways away. Um, and, uh, yeah, it was just, you, it was still, it was such a paranoid type uh, time for sure. And so what was the first cup you ended up going to yourself? Um, first cup, actually, the first competition I went to was the OMCAs. Oregon Medicinal Cannabis Awards. Um, and actually, we wound up taking first place with our mad scientist. Uh, okay, so that was obviously a bit more recently. Yeah, that was 2011. I never went to Amsterdam. I've never been into Amsterdam. So, um, yeah, my first cup was here. So, that was it. It was a small local state thing. Uh, first High Times Cup was the first one that was here in L.A., Interesting. And, and did you ever have, uh, you know, a lot to do with the, the following cups after that in California and whatnot? Um, did the high time circuit quite a bit, did a couple of the other ones. Um, but yeah, no, mainly just the high times. And do you feel like they, they kind of helped the scene develop over the years or maybe not as much as other avenues, like say forums or things like that? Um, I think the forums did a lot. They had their place. Uh, unfortunately, once again, I'm not a computer guy. I wasn't on the forums, so I don't know much about the forum life. Um, but I meet a lot of people now that that's all they're about is forum this. And, you know, I was so-and-so on this forum. And um, there's a lot of great people that were on those forums. Um, as far as high times, I think it allowed an avenue for people to come and, uh, yeah, see every, everything that they've we're reading about and hearing about um in the beginning uh towards the end i um they've changed a bit but yeah yeah okay and so how do you feel about things nowadays i mean emerald cup has been a hot topic in the sense that last year i remember being at the cup people were almost predicting like you know it was the last one that'll ever happen and it was all doom and gloom what's your forecast for cups going forward and specifically the emerald cup this year so, yeah, I've been doing Emerald Cup for a long time. Um, I'm good friends with a lot of those folks. Um, and we'll be there again this year. Um, but, yes, it won't be like it was last year. Last year was the last cup of the free will, of where you could freely bust up and do pretty much kind of what you wanted. Um, that's not happening anymore. Now it's all regulated. 
Um, if you're not licensed, if you're not from a nursery, there's all kinds of things that you have to be, even to be able to get the booth. So I think it's going to be a little different. But there's, you know, once again, there's always loopholes around everything. Uh, as I just mentioned, we will most likely we will be there. Um, I do believe that we were, we're talking with Jinx Proof about sharing a booth with him, actually. Oh, uh-huh. well, that was going to be my question. Will you have your own booth or just be represented with CT now? Um, I haven't spoken with James, um, but most likely Seeds here now does a fantastic showing at those. Um, we normally like to have our own booths, uh, just that way we get a little bit of time to talk to the people that are, you know, supporting us. And, uh, but, you know, then again, it's sometimes nice just to let James and his crew do their job and just go and have fun and enjoy yourself. So that's kind of where we're at now. Um, but Jinx, Jinx Proof just hit me up here in the last last week and was talking to me about this. So that's kind of a new development that we're in talks about right at the moment. Yeah, okay. I remember last year I cruised past your booth a few times and every time you were locked in a conversation. Is that what it feels like to you? Yeah, no, that is, that's why I love doing them um, is so that I can get locked into conversations with the supporters because it's great to hear what they think or what they're doing or how it's going and, you know, just hear their stories of how your strains did for them for the following, the, the prior year um, or the future of. Um, so, yeah, you know, that's the thing. That's why it's kind of nice to do your booth. That way people can come and talk to you. And how often is it that someone will come by the booth and bring you a sample of your work and you're like really blown away by it? Quite often. Uh, most shows, actually. We've, uh, unfortunately, we've, I've slowed down on doing shows. I think Emerald Cup's the only one we're pretty much doing this year. Um, but, uh, yeah, no, it's, there's, there's some amazing growers out there. And, um, you know, I would like to think that we're providing them with some fantastic genetics to grow. So it's really nice to get something back that just is like, wow, that's fantastic. Yeah, I mean, on the topic of providing genetics, how do you feel when people want to breed with your work? Do you feel like you're all cool with it, you know, just like maybe give me a little hello, how you doing, or what's your stance on it? Absolutely. Um, if, if it's something that I don't want the public to have and or work with, um, I wouldn't release it. I have lots of those things. Um, but there's... You know, so it's it's more of an honor and a privilege for somebody to use your genetics in something because it takes a lot of time to do to create genetics and test them out and you know and having a vision of where you're wanting to go with it. Um, and if that works in somebody else's head and it's one of our genetics, that's awesome. But yeah, always you know the head nod's great. Cool, cool. And so. If we kind of jump back to the Emerald Cup for just one last second, um, do you ever get a chance to cruise around with the intention of trying to find like eye off what the next kind of trend is or like find some new hot breeders or do you find it's just too chaotic to really be able to do that? Yeah, you know, it's pretty chaotic. Um, There's definitely a lot of new good new breeders out there. Um, Always is, always will be. Um, yeah, it's kind of chaotic. Um, you know, and we're creating, we create so much that for us to pop somebody else's genetics at this point, except for at a client's facility, 
um, becomes rough. Yeah, okay. So, I'm going to put you on the grill for a second. Whether you've got to do it imaginatively because you're not able to in real life or whether it is the real life answer, let's just say for your personal grow, you're going to pop a pack of seeds, you know, just one pack. What's it going to be? Quantum. Haha, uh-huh. easy choice. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I pop quantum everywhere I go. <laughs> so, like, do you, do you like to find new keepers of things or do you like to hold on to old keepers? Um, you know, if there, if there are strains that we created, yeah, um, in and out. You know, if we find something that's that's special, we'll have it we'll have it tested. And if our thoughts are right that it is special, then we may hold on to it for future progress. Um, but most of the time, yeah, we've got a whole bunch of moms in a library already. We don't need to keep a bunch of stuff we make in C form. Yeah, that's. I mean, that's a that's a good answer if you've got that much confidence in the seed stock. Is it true? I might be wrong, but I think I'm right that uh, Geek Mike actually found that cut out of just a single five seeds. Yeah, yeah, that's true. I gave him a five pack. Um, he wound up getting five females, and that wasn't even the best female out of the five pack. Wow. Uh, the best, yeah, the best. He said the best one didn't clone. Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> yeah so yeah you know um he got fairly lucky not everybody has that you know gets that luck unfortunately that tells me that somebody out there got a five pack of males yeah yeah you know it's probably a breeder and they were probably stoked <laughs> right <laughs> <laughs> all righty so i just wanted to loop back a while back you mentioned um that like you know sensi were the people advertising in high times and stuff like that i'm always interested to know what's your opinions on sensi in regards to like when and why do you think they went to shit um they you know so they crossbred out too much right i think and they just got they, they, they also subbed everything out to people in Spain or somewhere else to make their seeds, right? Um, yeah, you can go to Spain and they're sitting on five-gallon buckets full of seeds. They'll sell you all day long. Um, just big old totes. You can buy them by the tens of thousands. Are they really what they are or are they something different, you know? It's hard to say. And I think that's kind of what crushed them a little bit was – once they went to that model, they kind of lost control of what they were actually getting back in seed form. Yeah, definitely. I think I saw a post a few months back. I, I wish I remember who it was because if you're not familiar with this post, it would totally allow us to go look at it. But basically, someone in the community um, posted that they had a plant they were calling Kush 4. And they were saying that it was one of the supposed parents of the original Hindu Kush offered by Sensi. And it just got me thinking, like, do you think it's even possible that, like, a parent that, like, Sensi was breeding with, do you think, like, realistically it's possible that a parent like that is even around anymore? Or is not the whole implied point of the last question that, like, those parents are gone? Yeah, those parents are gone. I think there was a couple of raids in between those. And I think that a lot of them got kept down by little boys in blue kind of thing. So, you know, um, a lot of people that's, that all of a sudden reappear and say, oh, I still have this. Do you really? Um, you know, it, we'll never really know because everybody's opinion is always changing and you always have new reference points. So is it the same? Is it not? Hard to say. 
Yeah, interesting. So if we kind of fast forward to today's scene, I feel like it's categorized predominantly by like a, a terpene or like a flavor emphasis in this modern era. Would you agree or do you feel like it's still predominantly a potency emphasis? Um, within connoisseurs, it's definitely terpenes. Within uh, the market cells, it's potency. Okay. So like with that being said, how do you feel the CBD is going to work considering that you know, there is this emphasis on potency and CBD strains, generally speaking, are kind of lacking in that. Do you feel like CBD is on the way out, so to speak? Um, I think CBD is on its way out, but not because of that reason. Um, I have some friends that do some fantastic CBD work. They're all the way up to 25, 20%, six, 25 to 26% CBD with no THC and then flavors of all the rainbow, skunks, fruits, lemons oranges whatever you want um but there's other things on the horizon that i feel that are going to interrupt the cbd program would you care to shine a little light on those things absolutely recently here in america cbd was taken off of scheduling and now has received a fda approval for a specific pharmaceutical company and they're going to now they can sell you cbd derived from plants um, prescription-wise through your doctor. Um, They're still talking about it and if insurance will cover it or not, but most likely it will. And they're going to gouge people. And uh, yeah, but now it's going to be legal and controlled by them. Wow, okay. And so you think that, yeah, just controlling interest will try to implement some legal changes so that it's just not being produced outside of them? absolutely um what i would be concerned with is if all of a sudden they came back and made it a schedule two which schedule twos can only be made by pharmaceutical companies that would take care of right there so interesting and and do you feel like that would just also be a stepping stone to then do the same with thc afterwards um no um you know i I don't think I don't think it's going to happen with THC. Um, too many people like smoking the flowers um, and the concentrates, just freshly derived. Um, but uh, you know, CBD. Most CBD is taken in pill form, tincture form. Um, so it's a little bit different. Yeah, I guess it kind of lends itself to the pharmaceutical model a little more. Right, absolutely, because it's an isolated molecule, right? The bad part is, is that we nowadays, you know, we've known for a while that you need CBD along with THC. So they're still going to be depriving their patients of what they truly need. Yeah, yeah, and I'm, and you know, we all know the same is true for the opposite end of the spectrum with the whole drovenol thing and the pure THC. That was no good either. Right, absolutely not. Interesting. So, I mean, if we're on the topic of uh, interesting cannabinoid profiles, I had a a nice little question for this one. You've worked with like some CBD lines before. Notably, the one that caught my eye was the Canna Sioux. And um, 
the, the thing which I notice about this is you crossed it with a THC male, so you're going to end up with like a like you know a hybrid type of end product where it's some THC, some CBD. Obviously, there'd be some variation. Do you find that these lines in general fare well in the market, or they're just really not received to the same degree that say a regular THC line is? Absolutely, they uh, do not. They're not. They're not as marketable as a regular THC strain is. Even though the uh, the one you're talking about is our Canarec, um, Canacee by Timerec, and uh, it tests two to one to one to two, um, CBD being first. Um, but uh, you know, it uh, it added a whole lot of structure and bigger buds to the plant. Um, Canacee itself was pretty larfy and lay out, laid out, didn't really stand up and grow, grew fairly ugly and really small buds. Um, so we hit it to our, with our time rank mill that increases bud sizes, adds strength within stem and uh, potency. So we really didn't know what to expect there, but it, it wound up turning out all right. We hit anywhere from 13, 14% CBD to, you know, half that and THC or vice versa. You know, that and THC with 4 or 5% CBD. So when you talk to your customers who grow out these crosses, generally speaking, what do you find is their preference in regards to the keeper phenos? Are they the more THC dominant phenos or the more CBD dominant phenos? Um, most of them are more CBD dominant. Um, and, uh, you know, CBD is a, a unique cannabinoid that, cannabinoid that matures early. So if it has too much THC, just pull it a little bit earlier um, and you, it'll still be higher CBD with lower THC. So, you know, I explain that to them when they're, when they're looking for the right ratio of what's going to work best for them. Okay. And so do you find that one thing I've heard is this complaint of a lot of CBD strains or the pure ones at least having this common denominator terpene profile, which some would describe as cherry. Have you found that yourself? Absolutely. The old, the old, older CBDs, when you extract them, they all taste like cherry. Um, and that's how, you know, it was always well known that you were hitting CBD. Um, nowadays, I would, you know, but they're all hybrids. You know, we've hit them with other things and then outcross them back and, you know, to, just to pull certain terpene profiles um, to, to get to the flower to where people hopefully would want to smoke the flower. Yeah, okay. And so this idea I've been kicking around for a while, it, you know, it's, I don't think it's right or wrong, it's just an interesting idea, is like embedding kind of a little bit of CBD in the back of what we would regard as regular strains. So there are a lot of strains out there which do this where, you know, maybe there's like 2, 2.5, 3% CBD. You know, it's just kind of like, you know, hiding in the background, but enough to actually do something. And the idea is like, you can subconsciously, you know, get some of those benefits into people without them knowing and then hopefully eventually people start to give it a bit more credence. What do you think about that idea? Do you think like it could ever possibly work or there's just maybe some issues with it? Yeah, no, it, it could possibly work. Um, obviously, I, I definitely agree the more cannabinoids and terpenes you have, the more effective all the medicine is. Um, it really just comes down to what works best for you. Um, you know, that's the great thing about cannabis is it's so diverse that you'll eventually you'll find one. But, you know, um, 
I don't know how. I don't know if that's enough to get people to want to try CBD more or not. Okay. So, do you think that some of these more rare terpene profiles are the way of the future? I remember reading in uh, some of your strains, you're getting CBG and CBC showing up, you know, some of these more kind of exotic ones. Do you think that that is the way of the future or it's just kind of like a cool tivet that's probably going to go by and we won't talk too much about it? Yeah, no, I think that uh, um, rare cannabinoids is definitely going to be a big thing coming up. Um, one that we're working with is THCV and the CBC, um, our quantum Kush. We find good amounts of that, both of those in it. Um, what I consider good amounts is 2% plus. Um, the highest we've seen so far is 3%. We see a lot below 2%. In between that 2 to 3%, we see quite a bit as far as THCV. Um, CBC um one percent one and a half percent is pretty much the highest of that i've seen but with the new technologies we have it's, it makes it a lot easier to to know if it's transferring in the crosses the way we want it to or if it's not yeah okay so i think some of this curiosity stemmed initially from reading some of the information around tardis specifically where it said there's been some you know research indicating that some of the profile of the cannabinoids has got tumor fighting properties was this like something you guys looked into a lot or is it just kind of like a, a peripheral thing you noted just kind of more of a peripheral thing we noted um i was fortunate enough to work with a really good lab in oregon for a long time and they worked with me and educated me a lot on what we had um and kind of explained to us, you know, how our, how special some of our crosses were. So the witch intrigued us to figure out, well, what's bringing those to the table? So which intrigued us to more testing and more learning. And so, you know, we've, I followed them a lot. I have several years worth of lab results um, on a lot of our strains, full terpene profiles and full cannabinoid profiles, all from the same lab. Um, and uh, it definitely has helped a lot, I think, now – if we can find a genoming one that works well, um, that could even help even more. How do you feel about Phylos? You know, so Phylos, I've been involved with them for a long time. Sonny Chiba and I um, worked on the, uh, the seed laws in Oregon when we went recreational. And we met, um, we were introduced to Phylos at that point in time. Um, so I've dealt with Mowgli for quite some time. Um, I have several of our strains in there. Um, they wanted us to put in specific phenotypes, and I'm like, no, I'm going to put in moms and dads. That way any of our crosses can be traced right back to the mom and dad. Um, so that's what we did. So our, all of our males and most of our breeding moms are in the Phytos library. Um, and we did that a while ago. Um, as I said, we've been talking with them and whatnot quite a bit. Um, so yeah, you know, I don't know. The, the, the information that they give you is kind of, eh, not really clear. Yeah. Okay. So a common feedback I've heard is that there is this kind of, there's a degree of hard to operate within the universe and how to like actually understand things. Do you feel like that is something they should really be focusing on trying to improve? Or do you think that it's just like a learning curve people need to adapt to? Well, so what they're doing is they're doing a short path. So from my understanding, 
I'm not gonna, I'm not a big science guy, and I'm, I'm not good with big words, but uh, um, they're doing a short path technique, which is just breaking it down pretty basically, and then there's a long path technique, which I know there's a company out of Colorado working with. Um, they've ran a few of our strains. They actually were the ones that informed me that in our quantum Kush, we have um, Russian ruderalia, or Russian hemp, sorry, Russian hemp, which um, provided apparently in this in this specific phenom, russet mite resistance. Uh, they found this plant that didn't seem to have hardly any russet mites on it when everything else was infected really bad. Turned out to be a quantum Kush, so they went ahead and ran a long path on it and found out that it had Russian hemp in its lineage. So that was kind of the uh, conclusion that they came to. But I think that there's definitely ones, certain ways that they could get us the information that we need. And uh, I just don't know that Phylos is doing that for us. Yeah, so a lot of people uh, are kind of a bit skeptical of the idea that by getting your samples done at Phylos, they're now, you know, kind of in the open domain. You don't have to worry about things in a legal sense as much. Do you believe that is the case? Because I find it still hard to get a clear answer on this. Well, so there's some people out there already that they did some utility patents and um, they got them and they cover such a wide array, wide array of cannabinoid and terpene or uh, cannabinoid and terpene profile that it covers a lot. So to protect us from people patenting plants, first off, it's kind of hard to patent a plant um, because there's so much variety in it. Even in IBLs, when I pop seeds of IBLs, there's still varieties in it. Um, you know, so there's an issue there. But with CRISPR systems coming and stuff like that, you know, it's possible to do it all. Um, but will it protect us in the future? I hope so, kind of, you know. Um, but does that include, like, offspring from said what's in the galaxy? Or is that, you know, does all of a sudden offspring now become open when you couldn't have made that without this to begin with? I don't know how all that works. Yeah, okay. Let's just loop back for one second. You mentioned the Russian hemp. Does that not kind of have something to be said for the ruderalis genetics and how sometimes they're just brushed to the side? Yeah, you know, I think um, obviously everything has a good purpose to it and uh, it will, as a land race, will create resistance to whatever the pest is and continue to survive. It's a weed. Um, we do still have to remember that. And uh, it definitely adapts very quickly. So I think that uh, there's most likely some traits there that are good. Um, I just know that on actual Ruderellis coming up, out, it's very, it's like headache pot from my understanding. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, have you heard of any of the more modern companies doing it? I mean, some of them are certainly getting really good reviews. Oh, yeah, no, um, I, I hope I say this right, but Mephesto, um Genetics, they kill it, um, you know. There's definitely a few companies out there. The Autoflower game is doing fantastic. Um, a lot of people still, it's a huge market, you know. A lot of people, that's what they prefer. Yeah, definitely. So, in terms of photo period, we'll jump off the autos for a sec. I uh, I want to know, what do you think is the absolute longest photo period strain 
that would be commercially viable? Um, you know, I think if you're commercially, if you're pushing eleven or twelve weeks, you you're kind of you're kind of there. Is that more what you're asking? Is what flower time or yeah yeah, yeah definitely yeah um, I think that uh, you know and that's where you come into the market you know um, it, it will so a company that can put out strains in an eight week cycle is going to get six cycles per year right so um, and a company that's doing them every 12 weeks is only going to get three and three and a half cycles a year so somewhere it, it has to equal out to pay all the bills because no matter what you ain't growing it for free and you're paying a lot um, so if the market will allow it I can see it going longer um, but it really kind of depends on what the market demands hmm. and so what do you predict to be the next big thing the market demands <laughs> yeah that the, it's changing so rapidly right now that's that's a loaded question um, there's it's really hard to say you know it's so it's so I, I hate to say it but more or less unstable um, of what how things are going and what's going to happen next and you know here in California medical goes away in January they lose their 215 so how is that going to affect the market um we don't know yet. It's hard to say. It's kind of hard to predict that. Um, I think that uh, eight, nine weeks is kind of where the market's going to have to stay to be competitive, at least on a large scale. Hmm. So do you think then that if something, as in maybe a strain, would come in and be that next game changer slash paradigm shift, it would essentially be confined to those flowering times? Uh, yeah, I don't know. The, you know, there's always a new hype strain. Um, who's going to have the next big, best, biggest thing? Hard to say. It could be anybody. So do you feel like the market is still dominated by numbers in regards to percentages or do you think that that's kind of fallen off a bit? Yeah, no, I definitely still, still by percentages all day long. Um, people walk in and what's the strongest? Every shop owner I know will tell, will tell you that. So I've spoken to a few breeders in the past and they said if they make some stuff, generally, even if they love it, if it's not testing above, say, 20 22%, they're just not even going to consider it for release. Do you sit in the same boat? Uh, yeah, no, and that's where the market is. Absolutely, 100%. If, you, if you're pushing strains out that are below 20%, they're going to sit on the shelf for a while. That's going to be all concentrates. Yeah, interesting. And so, are these the type of things that are in the forefront of your mind as a breeder, or are you more considering other attributes like flavor and things like yeah, that? Yeah, I, I don't concern myself with all that. I've always been about, you know, um, more medicinal effect and flavors, you know, kind of what we like, um, what everybody else likes. What we like really doesn't matter as much, but um, what everybody else likes and, um, yeah, it's kind of where we go. The you know the hype thing is cool and all, but yeah, I, we don't do a lot of work with a lot of the new hype strains or anything to that effect, just because of that. Um, really not into that hype thing. 
Yeah, okay. So, what does it take for you to bring a new clone into the library then? Uh, normally, it has to be an old cut that I've been looking for. At this point in time, I've got pretty much what I want to play with, and now it's just reworking itself upon itself. So, it begs the question, are there any old school cuts you would love to get, but you just don't think they're around anymore? Yeah, obviously, the road kill um, <laughs> or whatever. <laughs> You know, as we discussed before, whatever that may have been. Um, yeah, you know, um, I'm privileged enough to where most of the breeders, um, I can ask them and get access to pretty much whatever I want. Um, so, you know, um, having that accessibility um, frees it up a little bit to allow us to, uh, you know, play a little bit more um, like I said we have a lot of crosses that we've done and have not released um, just because they were we felt that they were really good too good to, that we didn't want to release them or obviously they weren't good enough but yeah access to cuts for us is pretty easy fortunately enough so I'd have to say not really yeah okay sounds like you're a very lucky man <laughs> yeah I, I definitely consider myself that to be absolutely so my last little question in regards to testing and things around that nature is have you ever considered or do you currently engage in, you know, some of those like um, kits which like are now offered by the labs in regards to early cannabinoid profile testing and early sex testing and things like that or are you just old school? Definitely don't do the sex testing. I'm super old school with that. Um, the plant's going to tell you in a few weeks. Just chill. Um, and uh, as far as uh, um cannabinoid ratios and stuff like that. That's more for CBD guys. Um, you know, um, as I mentioned before, my buddy too, and then my other friend, uh, Adam Jocks, they both use those and, uh, it allows them to cruise through their stock really fast, but they're popping thousands of seeds, you know? So I can see where that's helpful. Um, we're doing thousands of seeds as well, but I'm fairly old school with that. I like to see what it does. Yeah. Okay, cool. So, I mean, you mentioned CRISPR and CRISPR is some cool technology, you know, kind of can hint to the past of some things. But one thing it's not going to tell us is who picked that time wreck mail. Was it you or Sub Cool? But before we get into it, let's go back. How'd you first meet Sub? We, you knew it was coming. Let's get into it. Yeah, I knew it was coming. So, actually, um, I originally first met Dioxide. Yeah. He was manager at a, at, a, at a growth store where I lived. Um the first time that I met Subcool Dioxide, brought him out to my house to see my Oregon diesel in my backyard that was done in uh, September, first week of September. Um, that was the first time he was ever at my house. I had never heard of TGA before Dioxide or any of that. Um, but Dioxide, throughout the time that I had met Dioxide and before the sub came out, um, had given me a lot of packs to pop, and we popped them all. So when they came out, we had a room full of all their genetics in full flower. Um, yeah, and that was the first time that I met him. So, uh, after that, you know, they, Dioxide kind of talked to me and, um, we talked for a while about him, about us producing seeds on a larger scale and then distributing them for us. And we're like, sounds like it could be fun. Sure. Let's check it out. Um, so that's kind of how that history went. One of the tester strains that we did back then for them was dioxide's creation of time wreck um 
So even before I was obviously a tester, um, so we popped some. Uh, my son Donovan found a male that he liked a lot. The branching came up within a couple inches from the top, including the bottom branches. All the branches had a beautiful structure, great smell. Uh, we talked with dioxide if we could use it for some crosses. Um, Mushmouth described to him what he wanted to do and the line that he wanted to go through. And uh, dioxide's like, yeah, absolutely, not a problem. So um, that's kind of where we started with the uh, Doctor Who and uh, the Quantum and the Mickey. Um, the JTR mail actually came to us through dioxide as well. Um, and uh, that was to do some crosses. We had the medicine woman, which was a strain created by a gentleman there in Oregon for his wife's fibromyalgia. And he wanted us to cross the Jack the Ripper to the uh, medicine woman. So that was Nurse Jackie. That was one of our um, first releases as well. Um, but yeah, throughout that time, we started doing cups, started working with, with Sub had moved to California by that point in time. I never really hung out with them or talked with them much other than on the phone or whatever. My main person with TGA was Dioxide. Um, helped him with the soil company and, uh, you know, a lot of that kind of stuff. But, uh, you know, worked a lot of the cups. Um, my sons and I um, ran the booth for several years, um, set up. We would, I'd bring in a crew. We would set up the booth and tear down the booth and run the booth and all that good stuff. Um, but those were back in the day, good old days when Heroes of the Farm um, joined in, and he was making stuff with dioxide as well, and that was the Heroes of the Farm collab thing um so once that got going then uh pat's like hey do you mind if i use the time rack mail to do some crosses so i'm like yeah sure not a problem so we worked out a collaboration and all that kind of stuff and um he went ahead and used the time rack mail and that's the locomotion and a few of those other ones right that's our time rack mail um yeah, so as far as the mail, the time wreck mail, yeah, no, it was not found by Sub. It was found by my son Donovan, and it was while it was in testing mode. We have, we got permission, we talked to Dioxide about it beforehand, and uh, yeah, everything was good, gravy, um, and all that. I know now that Sub likes to claim that he gave it to me, and uh, that he found it, and all that good stuff, but uh, yeah, that's far from the truth, unfortunately. Why do you think he wants to take credit for it? <laughs> you know, um, I'm not really quite sure. I would think, you know, as I explained earlier with people using our genetics for strength, for making stuff, um, I feel privileged and honored about it. If they mention it's cool, if they don't, cool. Either way, they paid the money for the seed that I was offering. They bought their goods. Um, I think right now the biggest issue is that he has uh, got himself into some places where he went bragging that they were all his and he owned all this and he owned all that when he doesn't. He never grew that time wreck mail. He's never seen, uh, grown any of the stuff that we make. Um, same with Pat, same with um, Heroes of the Farm, same with James Proof. Um, you know, there's there's been several. I hang out now with Sonny Chiba. Sonny Chiba was the original person that helped Miss Jill bring Subcool to the West Coast. He's the one that created Dope Purple Doja, Black Cherry, Black Cherry Soda, Lemon Freeze. This whole list goes on. Does he get credit for him? Very rarely. Now that Miss Jill and Sub are separated, 
Miss Jill has actually come out and explained a lot of the truths. And I, I really, I, I appreciate that. And I love her for that. Um, at one point in time, she was part of the issue, but she's changed and uh, has, you know, come full circle as, as far as I'm concerned, as far as that goes. Um, I would give Sub more credit because he is a great man. He has done a lot for the community. Um, and he did definitely help us in marketing and whatnot to that effect. Um, but that was part of the agreement. That was part of the distribution agreement. Um, that's why we put their names on the back of our covers. You know, we all had the little TGA little circle on the very back of our covers up in the top corner. All of our names are on the front. They're all of our strains. So why he sits there and says that he claims the creation of all them and this and that, I really don't know. It's the same that he tells, tells people that he taught me how to grow. Yeah, my father heard that and was kind of like, really? So he was around when you were 14? It's kind of like, no, he wasn't. You know that. But at any rate, people will believe what they want to believe, and I'm okay with that. I don't try to defend it. I don't come out and talk a bunch of trash or anything like that about Subcool, and I, and I won't. Um, we had some issues, and uh, yeah, um, that was it, I, you know. So what was it ultimately which catalyzed the decision for you to part ways? So what it came down to is they brought in another group that was starting to run the cup. They were extremely rude to me and my children, me and my boys, um, that have been running the, the shows for years. Um, and I, the next show coming up was the Denver show, and I asked him, I was like, so I think for the Denver show I'd just rather do my own booth. And he freaked out. I was like, well, you know, this is what it comes down to, is you have our seeds being sold all over the place in other booths throughout the show. I don't see why it's a big deal that I have our own booth and we sell our own seeds. Um, he couldn't see it, and I said, okay, well, then that's it. We're done. And that was pretty much it. Yeah, I mean, it seems pretty simple. I mean, you know, we all have the same agreement, so... Heroes of the Farm would bring a set amount of seeds. I bring a set amount of seeds. Jinx would bring a set amount of seeds. We would sell all the seeds. We'd split everything equally, pay all the help, and go our separate ways after each show, after everything was covered. Um, you know, I've, I, I've heard ridiculous things come from him as far as, like, I paid him $40,000 a show to do this, and he never paid me that. We never made that. We had one show in L.A. one year, or San Bernardino one year, where we did over $40,000, only one. And, uh, yeah, I didn't get it all, far, far from it. But, I mean, I could sit here and go on about a whole bunch of different stories. But what it comes down to is we definitely just didn't see eye to eye on where I wanted to go and what I wanted to do. And uh, he was unmoving, unwilling to move and compromise. Yeah, it's interesting you made that comment um, about Sonny Cheever's work. A, a sentiment we've heard in the past is that, you know, some of the best work to ever come out of TGA was from the Canadian crew. Do you kind of echo that sentiment? <clears throat> um, yeah, I don't know what work, what work came out of the Canadian crew because that was all in Oregon. Yeah, I think, I think they're pretty much just referring to Sonny Cheever. <laughs> yeah, Sonny Cheever was Oregon. Oh, there you go. So, um, yeah, it was... And he wasn't Canadian at all. He was there in Portland, Oregon. There you go. And a final little thing I wanted to quickly ask you about this. 
Dioxide's an interesting character to me. This is going to sound like a weird question, but I had to ask it because I had always I I I'm familiar with him through his involvement with um the Chernobyl, and I love it. You know, it's super energetic, really gorgeous high. I love it. I've got a really nice keeper I found, and I can't remember who told me, but someone was like, "Oh man, you should meet." dioxide like he's like real high energy like he makes weed like his personality do you, do you find that to be true or is that just some random story i got told well you know he's pretty hyped up most of the time he's pretty kicked back though he's fairly level-headed um as far as i was concerned he definitely made the best strains that tga offered as far as the tga company um him and sub as partners um you know he's the one that found the jtr mal he uh he made he. I watched him go through a three-year search of Kushes before before he decided or OGs before he decided to use the Hell's OG to make the Jesus. You know, so I mean, he was definitely really into what he was doing, and he was really good at it. Um, but yeah, as soon as it wasn't long after him and Sub split up, that Sub and I split up as well. Yeah. Okay. So. Do you feel like it's a bit of a weird situation given that you do use that Jack the Ripper male or you think like not really? Um, actually, we don't use it anymore. We haven't used it for years. Um, we were the ones that gave it back to... So, so after Dioxide did all the breeding. So after Dioxide and Sub separated, Sub did not have the JTR male. So he had to hound me for it and hound me for it. And I kept telling Dioxide, I'm like, hey, man, he's bugging me again for that JTR male. Dioxide finally tells me, he's like, hey, I put you in a really bad situation here. Go ahead and give it to him. So it was at that point in time that I took the JTR mill back to sub. Um, we bred with it one more time after that, and that was it. I knew that our separations were coming, and that was their mill that they had picked from their company. So, yeah, I didn't want to use it. That was theirs. I get that. Um, the time wreck? Yeah, no, we found that. We take claim to it. It is ours, made by a dioxide. Yeah, for sure. So, final little question on the whole saga. I've asked this to some other people because this seems to be, I'm not going to say a common occurrence, but it's not, you know, you guys certainly aren't the only example. But, you know, do you feel like kind of in a sense you would like things to be, you know, cool given that, you know, some of that work is embedded within your own work, even if it's not a direct descendant. It's kind of almost like a little bit of a tipping of the hat given that it is embedded in there how do you feel about that um i would not have i don't have a problem giving dioxide credit any day yeah cool cool easy answer <laughs> <laughs> yeah no absolutely easy um all sub is is a salesman he doesn't breed um and yeah that's all there is to it he may he did at one point in time but once he got to dioxide once dioxide came in that was it um, after Dioxide left, he talked to me about doing all his breeding, and that didn't happen, so he went to Joel, um, North Star Genetics, which is who makes it all now. And uh, I've been to Joel's place, so I know what kind of breeding he does there. And when people sat there for the last three years after I left and come up to me and say, hey, the seeds that I bought from TGA last year weren't what I had got the year before. What happened? I couldn't answer, even though I know what happened. But I still wouldn't answer. Huh. And is that to do with like uh, the issue that Miss Jill was pointing out with males being lost <laughs> and replaced? 
<laughs> yeah, no, we learned about the males being lost same time they did. They ran them through phylos. Yeah, okay. So, when I spoke to Sub about that, he said that what had happened was the person who had sent the cuttings in made a mistake and took five cuttings of the same plant. It seemed like a, an interesting no. answer, though, maybe a little hard to swallow. What did you think? Absolutely not. <laughs> no. Um, yeah, that they don't... That just goes to show the kind of, of, of how, they, how he does everything. He relies upon everybody else to do everything. So once something goes wrong, it's a blame on somebody else. It's never a fault that he ever made. Yeah, okay. I, um, I had a, a good friend send me this question to ask you, so hopefully you're going to have more idea about it than what I do because I have no idea what this means at the moment. But he said... Um, the time wreck he got from dioxide, was it a female except only one branch that hermied? So, yeah, absolutely. So, um, yeah, the, uh, some of the genetics that, uh, that could put out of there, um, have high, high hermaphrodation results. Um, so more or less if, if just one branch did it though, I would look more towards a light leak of some sort around that branch but uh it is definitely possible they have some stuff that you know the 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 jtr male the space dude which if you ever get um if you ever get sunny on here maybe he'll explain to you about the space dude story um but uh it's you know it's a super cross of multiple things you know and as you keep continue to cross it it's super unstable so it creates unstable genetics yeah okay and so I think he had a bit of a follow up and he says do you think that this accounts for the occurrence of hermaphrodisms in nature um I don't I think it more so comes from stressing of meshed together genetics yeah okay yeah I think I kind of get what he was getting at now given your answers right cool something stressing the plant out to where it's getting the signal that it's going to die. Um, cannabis is fortunate enough to be able to produce both male and female sex organisms and reproduce itself. So when it hits a point to where either a light leak or um, the gases are off or something that it doesn't like or something that stresses it, it's going to cause a termaphrodite, which is produced both parts so that it can pollinate and produce seeds to continue to live. Once again, it is a weed. Yeah. Okay, so on the topic of producing seeds, are there any little extra perks or little kind of icing on the cake you like to give to your female plants when you're creating seeds? Uh, not really. So you just, yeah, you just kind of treat it like it's a sensi crop except the fact it's not? <laughs> well, um, yeah, I, I will, uh, at different feeding, right? I don't want to um, deprive it of nitrogens um, because it's it's no different than... Um, a female that gets pregnant, they need prenatals. Um, they need different nutrients than what you're given a regular flowering plant, at least in my opinion. And that's personal, you know. And that's there's probably going to be a bunch of people say, "Oh, you're just crazy." Possibly, I could be, but it, it works for me, and I'm happy with it that way. Cool. And have you ever noticed a difference in the end outcome of a seed based on the different medium or nutrients it's being fed? Or do you think overall it's same, same? We've pretty much used the exact same soils and the exact same nutrients 
um, for the last 10 years, 12 years. So most of our breeding has been done on the same regimens. Yeah, okay. I mean, maybe to play devil's advocate, I don't suppose you've ever seen like a bit of a questionable grow or maybe a better way to phrase it is you pop some seeds and got some, you know, some funky germination ratios or some bad germination ratings and then maybe you went and saw the grower and, you know, you weren't too impressed by their setup and you were like, this is maybe why. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. We uh, we germ test, germination test all of our seeds. I have, We make our seeds fresh every year. We don't like them to sit. We do small batch. And that that's the reason why, because our fresh seeds are way better than five-year-old seeds. They're going to have a better germination rate. Um, so, you know we don't really seem to have problems with it. So when people call me or contact me with that issue, I have a set of questions that I run through with them. And uh, normally it's something on their end and we usually send them back out a pack and uh, um, the next round they usually don't have the same problems. Yeah. Okay. That's a good little answer. So, Going back to a bit earlier, you mentioned the medicine woman. That was an interesting one I wanted to ask you about, but thankfully you filled us in on the backstory. But I also had written down Sweet Irish Kush. This is another one where you use it. Not a whole hell of a lot of a backstory on it. Would you mind filling us in a little more about it? Yeah, so Sweet Irish Kush um, was created by my friend that I was living with in the 90s when we did the uh, Ash Plant Cross. Um, he continued to do more breeding throughout his time, but Sweet Irish Kush was one that he created and he's a hydro guy. Colorado is a lot of hydro, especially back in nineties, two thousands. Um, so, uh, it's a fairly quick strain. Um, it's a, uh, 92. It's an O. So from him, it's an OG by, um, sweet leaf. So that's the cross. Um, when we put it through Phylos, it came back 50% OG and, you know, a few other things here and there, but yeah, it's, it's 50% OG. So, but it's a, it's an old one cause he created it in late nineties, 96, 97, I do believe something like that. And I've had it, I brought it to Oregon with me and I brought it back up. Oh, four, oh, five. And so, how does she compare to, say, your more typical OGs, like, say, maybe the SFV, which you mentioned at the start? Um, you know, Sweet Irish Kush is one of my favorites. Um, I really like that a lot. It has a fantastic high. It tests 25 27% pretty consistently. Um, it's a fast strain. Once again, he was into the fast strains for the hydro systems. We did uh, lab tests on her um, six weeks, seven weeks, eight weeks, nine weeks, and ten weeks. Six week was our highest THC and degraded from there on down. Um, but uh, it, it was fast. It's fast in veg. It's fast in flower. And it's kind of ugly to, to grow. It's all over the place. So it's kind of like a typical older OG where it's floppy and skinnier branch. Um, but it produces fairly well for as fast as it is. Interesting. And what's kind of the flavor profile? Just straight OG? <clears throat> no, it's a more of a really sweet OG, um, to be honest. It, uh, it, um, really sweet with a, with a bit of a funk to it. Yeah. 
Okay. So the other strain, I mean, there's a few I want to ask you about, but one which really caught my eye, Oregon Blues, and the part about it which caught my eye specifically was how it uses uh, what you say is the in-house IBL Jamaican Blueberry Sativa. What is that? You know, because like when I first read it, I was thinking, is he kind of talking about like a, a Dutch acclimatized Jamaican type of thing or just straight land race? Um, straight IBL from a, from a plantation in Jamaica on the, in the Blue Mountains. Um, they've been growing it there for generations. Uh, a friend of mine brought me back seeds. And uh, it, anything that it touches, it passes strong blueberries to. Um, the bad part about it is it's an IBL and it's very dominant. So you see a lot of it for generations out. Um, so <clears throat> we're still playing with it a little bit. Um, but yeah, that is the – so the Blue Mountain Kush uh, is uh, – is that was the one you asked about, right? Yeah, yeah. The Oregon Blues. Yeah. Oregon yeah. Blues is the Oregon Diesel by the Jamaican. Um, yeah. That you either get – so we have some – a few phenos we found that are really like, I want to say cat pissy, you know, very ammonia. Um, but then a lot of really blueberry, you know. So um, that one was – it was definitely different. It's not one that we put out to market because we didn't feel that it was up to par as of that, you know, at this point. But yeah. Okay. So what to you would be the ideal mating partner for the Jamaican? I don't know yet. Whatever it is, it's going to be a few crosses out. Um, just because as I say, the Jamaican is super strong and it's not necessarily, it's what you would think of when you think of a land race. It's very airy. It's very loose buds. It's very stretchy. It's, you know, it has a few different things, characteristics that, don't necessarily make it very viable viable in a market that we have today. Okay. And so the next question it stimulated in my mind was this idea of different blueberry origins because I remember when I was looking up some information on the infamous Vic High, he claimed he had blueberry that was of different origin to DJ Short. And I guess that was the first place I started to think like, was there multiple sources of blueberry or did it all come from DJ Short? Um, what's your feelings on it? You know, um, from uh, talking, so I'm friends with DJ. He's one of my favorite people to sit down and talk with. Actually, one of the old, one of the old guys that I really enjoy talking with. Um, <clears throat> but yeah, Vic High, from my understanding, took his blueberry and said he was going to make it better. Um, so yeah, I would almost have to say it was probably more so from uh, DJ than I would Vic, but. I wasn't around back then, so I, who knows for sure, right? You'd have to get both of them in to find out, you know, who was first and where did you source it from kind of a thing. But according to DJ, it's a Jamaican thing, so. Yeah, okay, there you go. So it also brings up this next question in my mind and you kind of referenced it at the very start of extremely isolated flavors. Part of the reason why I think tangy and blueberry and a few other notable ones have got such traction is because they're such dead ringers for this isolated specific profile. Do you think that that is maybe something you could aim for as a breeder if you were like, well, if I can, you know, if I've got a strain and it kind of smells like raspberries and I can refine it to the point where it's just bang on raspberries, like that would just be a market winner. Or do you think that it's just that would be an oversimplification of things? You know, 
I think it almost, but it's kind of an oversimplification, but I think we need the variety and being humans as we are, we all want different. So um, just a little bit different or a lot different is definitely dependent upon the person. But uh, yeah, um, you know, it, it, you not everybody can get the right fruit combinations. And once again, it's what pairs up together, what lines up together. You know, I've smelled several different strains that smell a lot like our grape high chief, you know, of our Dr. Who. But once you get into smoking them and you look at the bud structure, there, there's quite a bit of difference. Um, so, you know, I don't know. That's, uh, I guess, you know, it'd be nice to find the ultimate one, but I don't know if it truly exists. What's the flavor profile that you wish you had in cannabis form? Um, <laughs> you know, we've had, we have flavors from dirt to watermelon to rotten fruit to ripe fruit to, uh, suey to cat piss. I like them all. Kind of just depends on what kind of mood I'm in or what I'm getting ready to do or who I'm getting ready to go hang out with. Um, we've always been a group that we like to grow a lot of different things. Yeah. Perfect segue. What type of weed is your favorite weed? Flowers. <laughs> <laughs> Any and all. Um, you know, obviously right at the moment I have some, uh, two different kinds of, uh, Dr. Who in my stash. I've got some Scooby snacks, some dog walker, some, uh, Gorilla Glue, some Wi-Fi, some, uh, Banner number five, Bruce Banner number five. Some, I mean, right at the moment I've got a whole slew of flavors and, you know, it just depends on what the day is and what kind of mood I'm in is what flavor I grab. Damn, you do have everything in that bag. <laughs> yeah, no, I, uh, I make sure that I have choices. I like choices. I gotta, I gotta take a, a guess here. Do you have also dosy dough? I do not. Oh, damn. I have some SFV and I have some Chem Four though. Oh, how do you feel about Chem Four? We were getting around to the Chem Dog topic. Yeah, Chem's nice. Um, all the Chem Dog lines are really nice. We. Uh, we have a Chem 91 that is the other Chem 91. I don't know if you know that story or not, but there's another Chem 91 that goes around. Swerve worked with it. Um, we've been growing it for the past 10, 11 years, maybe more. Um, you know, that's a weird one. Every time we try to do any work with it, there's there hasn't been much that has came out that I was happy with. Um, but... Uh, we did. We hit it with the Mel Doctor Who, and I actually found several that I liked. So there's potential there, um, but there's still a lot more testing to go on with that one. But yeah, no, the Chem lines are fantastic. They're very potent. Um, they don't always cross very well, though. I don't think. Yeah, I can. Um, I can attest to how. They're potent, and I think that part of the potency comes from the fact that they are kind of like a bit of a winning lottery ticket, and it's kind of like the cookies, you know, like not everything's going to come out exactly as good as the parent because it is the anomaly in itself. With that being said, which of all the chem cuts is your favorite? I don't know. I like the 91. Yeah. The real 91. 
I like the real 91 and the other 91. So I like both the 91s quite a bit. They have more of the fuel flavor for me or the, the Kimmy funk, right? Um, the four is great for production because um, it gets nice and big, but I don't think it's as flavor. It, the flavor isn't as strong. It's a little mute on it. But if you're looking for weight, that's where you want to go. Um, if you were growing for your head and for a stronger flavor, the 91 is where it's at. I think you're the first person ever to have not mentioned the Chem D. Yeah, you know, Chem D, yeah, yeah, it's good. Um, but I wouldn't, I would, I, I think that uh, the 91 is, is the best out of the bunch. Kim's sister is super hard to find and try to get to smoke any of. So I haven't smoked any of that. Um, but, uh, you know, I've smoked Kim D, Kim 4, and the 91, and out of them, I like the 91 the best. Yeah, well, I mean, depending on which Kim D you smoke, you might have smoked the sister. That's very true. That's very, very true. But um, that's interesting you say that because I think at the end of the day, 91 rules for sure. Yeah, yeah. Alrighty, so with that being said, final question on the chem dogs. No one really knows. What do you think are the genetics behind it? We hear a lot of speculation of northern lights and hash plant and just things of that general nature. What do you think? Yeah, I definitely could see it being an Afghani of some sort um, just because of structure and growth. Um, it's hard to say, you know. Um, Speculation is a killer. You know, you can speculate on a lot of things, and most of the time, neither one's right. So, you know, I don't know. It's it's hard to say what the – if they can figure out the uh, whole genealogy thing, maybe we'll know someday. Yeah, okay. So, on the topic of cannabis that you like, what are you, more of an indica or a sativa guy overall? Definitely indica. Interesting. The reason why I asked that was kind of like a bit of a setup to this question is because when I was looking at a lot of your offerings, I think more of them lean towards the sativa side of things. Were you aware of this? Yes, I am very aware of that. Um, but a lot of people like those fast sativas. You know, they like just because we breathe them doesn't mean that I smoke them. You know, obviously I've tested them. And, it, you know, once again, it comes back to where I said it doesn't really necessarily matter what I like. What matters is what everybody else likes. Um, so, you know, obviously I, I got to like it in the beginning to create it. But if I create it and put it out and nobody likes it, then obviously it's just something that I like. If I create it and put it out and everybody's like, wow, that's fucking awesome, then I know that, hey, okay, we, have, well, we might have something here. So then you expand your, your tester group a little bit larger and a little bit larger. You know, back in the old days, the way we did it was we filled a jar, filled jars, multiple jars, and the first jar empty, that was the winner. Yeah, that's a good way of sorting the the cream from the milk. Yeah, yeah. So, with that being said, do you ever get people asking you to put out more indica dom crosses? And if you were to do so, what would be some of the parents you would look to use straight away? Um, yeah, you know, we're already working, we're already doing a mad scientist back cross. We just did the mad scientist back cross, um, just ran the first set of those. Those are really nice, short, squatty plants. Um, 
you know, we're more into reworking our lives more than, you know, stepping out of what we did. A lot of the moms that we use in our crosses were stuff, the crosses that we made. Um, so at this point in time, we're still working with our lines to get them to where we want them. And then maybe looking for a few others to play with and tinker with a little bit. But got to be pretty special for us to want to work with it. Yeah, okay. And so overall, do you like kind of creating 50-50s or do you like more doing them leaning one side to or the other? 50-50s are ideal, you know, because so sativas, you get a little bit of that stretch. Um, indicas will bring you in your your uh, stiffer, stronger stems and tighter internodals. Um, sometimes you need to stretch them out, so you hit them with a heavy end, a sativa mill. Um, sometimes you need to make them stronger and shorter, so you hit them more with an indica mill. Um, that's more the diversity that I like to look at is which direction are we trying to take the mom in? Are we trying to stretch it, make it more bigger buds, or are we trying to make it shorter or maybe a little bit faster? Um, yeah, kind of goes from there, and that's why we're trying to we've – got, we've got several males that we've spent the last few years picking out. We just haven't gotten around to working with them yet. So what what are some of these strains that you you know have got these males from? And a question I guess absolutely love: What are some of the characteristics or traits you look for when selecting a male? <sighs> selecting a male definitely a uniformity size of flower pod you know size of the the pod, the, the flower cluster at the end of the cycle coloring potencies. Um, yeah, it just depends on if we're, you know, are we looking for a male that's going to even out branches, make so, make more so for, um, you know, multi-head type crop? Or are we looking for something that's going to be more just two or three kind of top, you know, two to four tops or whatever? It's going to go more straight up. Um, just depends on what we're really looking for is where we're wanting to go is what we look for in the male. Um, right at the moment, we just... We've had a, uh, like I said, it took us three years to find our Dr. Humel, and we actually founded it a friend's, in a friend's garden. It wasn't even a seed that we popped. Um, it took us uh, four years before we found a quantum male that we liked. Um, we're getting ready to start playing with him. Now with him, we're going to bring in a, different, a few other OGs and hit him with just because of the sweet Irish Kush lineage there. Um, and just kind of see where that goes. Mainly with the quantum metal, we're wanting to more isolate into the THCV and the CVC and a few other of the, you know, the finer cannabinoids that we're now discovering or figuring out what uses they actually have. Yeah, okay. And one of the things we've heard of in recent episodes in terms of like the cutting edge things people do with males is reversing males and being able to express the male as if it was a female. And you can't smoke it because you spray it with some pretty toxic chemicals, but you can certainly get a, a, a possible indication of the terpene profile and things like that. Is this something you've ever thought about or even potentially engaged in? Um, I know about the, the practice. Uh, personally, I wouldn't do it because of, like you just said, you have to spray with some pretty harsh chemicals. 
Um, I don't like bringing those of anywhere around my garden, especially for something like that. A male will produce its own smell at the end of its flower cycle um, and throughout its flower cycle. Um, a lot of people, you know, it, it's a cool thing to look at and it looks cool in a picture and all that, um, but you can't smoke it. So, you know, and it's not fully expressed. So <clears throat> I don't know. I haven't done it due to the fact, as I said, I don't like the chemicals that you have to use to do it. And uh, I just don't foresee, with, you know, I, I think you see a lot of the same stuff if you just let the mouth flower out to full cycle. Yeah, okay. So, I mean, very much in that topic, how do you feel about resinous males? Do you feel like it's a positive indicator for the males' uh, potential to pass on good traits? Yes. Once again, um, it's male-dependent due to the fact that some will and some won't. Um, not everything transfers. When it's still a 50-50 mix, right? So, just because it transfers with this female, it may not transfer with that other female. Um so once again, it's going to be strain dependent and male dependent upon, you know, whether or not a resinous male is going to make a non so resinous female more resinous. You got a 50 50 chance. Yeah. Okay. So how do you feel about the idea of breeding with hermaphrodite prone females? Is it kind of like a challenge you're willing to take up or do you feel like you may be setting yourself up for more trouble down the line? Yeah, if it's something that's already prone for hermaphrodation, yes, absolutely. It's all you're doing is passing along that genetic. Um, now, if you have steady females and you light leak them or you stress them in a way to where they produce flowers, I feel that's a little bit different um, because they're tried and true females that you've ran flower that didn't herm or didn't produce any bananas or anything to that effect until they were stressed to a point where they thought they were going to die and wanted to live. How do you feel about feminized seeds in general? It really depends on how you go about doing them. Um, if you're doing it with a chemical spray on, on females that don't show any hermaphrodation signs beforehand, absolutely. That's the proper way to do it. Um, if you have a plant that's hermaphroditing and seeds out your room, yeah, you're not a breeder. Yeah, it's interesting because some of the earliest breeding programs I heard about were apparently more a result of the later of what you said than the earlier ones. Like, I believe I heard from a credible source that some of the original OG Kush fem seed releases from Oregon Kid were were like not a, an intentionally feminized project, but more of like a potential hermaphrodism type of thing. Yeah, I can totally see that. You know, it, it, it happens a lot. You know, I mean, <clears throat> anytime you find a bag seed, there was hermaphrodite somewhere, right? So when you think about it on that logic, Kim, the Kim line we were just talking about, those were all bag seed. Those were all from hermaphrodite crisis, crosses. Gorilla glue, hermaphrodite cross. Um, cookies, hermaphrodite cross. Um, you know, a lot of the great strains that are out there, the popular strains that are out there, were hermaphrodite crosses. So, is it a good thing or is it a bad thing? Well, from what I see, it could be either or. So, how would you feel about the argument which some people put forward and which I'll admit I'm starting to buy into myself that arguably the most memorable and influential strains of all cannabis history were bag seed hermaphrodite? 
Yeah, I would, you know, uh, um, that were marked, yeah, they're all good strains, absolutely. I would have to agree with that. They were accidental crosses that nobody intended to do. Yeah, it certainly says something for our uh, legacy as breeders. <laughs> yeah, right. Absolutely, it does. Uh, so, on the topic of uh, being a breeder, this is one I definitely wanted to run by you, and pre- people are probably scratching their heads why I haven't done it so far. Someone in your camp clearly has to be a Doctor Who fan, given all the strain names, right? So, yes. the question is, who's the who's the big Doctor Who fan? Who initiated the idea? More importantly, do you think that there was kind of this advantageous marketing side of things, given that there was this kind of household recognizable name involved? Originally, it absolutely was. Um, my father, uh, I grew up watching Doctor Who with my father. My sons grew up watching Doctor Who with their grandfather, my father. Um, and they, we just all, it was, it was a very memorable point in time. We all would get together on a Sunday and watch Doctor Who on PBS. Um, and it was just something that they were really into. It was originally the kids came up pretty much with the idea, and we kind of just ran with it. Um, now though, that we've found a Dr. Who Mel, now we're, it's who's Val or Valley who, or who's cookies, or, you know, we're calling everything. Who's this or who's that kind of thing. Who's boss or frost boss cross. Um, yeah, we have a whole bunch of those. <laughs> and so how much effort do you put into the consideration of marketing when naming a strain? Do you just think, no, I'm naming a strain what I want to name it? Or do you sometimes think to yourself, oh, but I also need to ensure that it does have some sort of commercial flyability, sorry, viability? <laughs> right. Um, you know, it, uh, it helps to have a catchy name for sure. Um, there's some names out there that are really long um, that just don't roll off the tongue so well. Um, but... You know, normally when we, we do a name, we try to include both parents. Um, but a lot of them, we, you know, it's obviously some of them we haven't. But somewhat of a reference, you know, because I mean, so Doctor Who is a cross of a mad scientist to a time wreck. Kind of self-explanatory when you look at it from that point of view, right? Um, the TARDIS is a time wreck. It's an organ diesel by a time wreck. I thought that we kind of thought that was, you know, pretty viable as well there too. Um, and now with the who's this and who's that, the kids don't necessarily like it. I think it's funny as can be. Um, is it marketable? We'll see. I don't know. We haven't released any of it. We haven't taken any flowers to market yet or anything like that. And it's just what I'm calling them right now so that we can kind of keep track of them. But, uh, yeah, marketability in a strain name is great. Um, seeing as how we're in our own industry, trademark infringement, you know, stuff like that kind of goes away a little bit right there. Um, we actually have all of our strain names and our names, company names, all that stuff trademarked for use in the cannabis industry. Um, have had for a few years at this point, um, you know, and actually the funny story was we got two days we got our, We received our okay for trademark within the cannabis industry for Doctor Who. Two days later, the OLCC, which is the who runs the cannabis in Oregon, came out with a list of the hundred strains that you couldn't use the name of, and of course, Doctor Who was one of them. So 
we have trademarks within state given us to the, by the state, but then again, we have this independent group telling us we can't use it. So, you know, I kind of found that to be weird, but it is what it is. So what do you ultimately call it? Um, just depends. Geek Farms calls theirs um, the doctor. Um, Doghouse grows our grape haichu cut, and they call that grape who. Okay, yeah, so they do skirt around it a bit. Absolutely. Everybody knows what it is. <laughs> you just can't have it on the label at the store. Yeah, yeah, no, I understand. So, next thing I wanted to kind of ask you, what do you feel, generally speaking, because, I mean, I think a big component of what you've been saying today is that individualization is a huge part of stuff. But just generally speaking, what do you think is the best type of weed for anxiety and what do you think is the best type of weed for depression in terms of the characteristics you might be looking for either to embody? So, for um, I, I prefer high mercy um, for anxieties. I suffer from anxieties quite a bit. Um, I find indicas are a lot better for that and for anxieties and relaxation. Um, if you're depressed, though, a good sativa, you know, to get you uplifting and feeling good. And um, sativas make you feel really creative and wanting to go, go do stuff. And I would explain to people, it's not necessarily that you're wanting to go do stuff. You just feel good. You know, it's you don't feel your pains. You're not, you have a better outlook on because you're not in pain. You're not in, in distress. You're not, you know, depressed. You, want, you actually are looking at life a lot differently. Yeah, okay. So, if someone was looking to take up growing to kind of help with an issue like what we just mentioned or something kind of similar, do you think they should consider CBD as like one of the first things they should grow or do you think that just regular strains is probably a better first port of call? Once again, it would, <coughs> excuse me, once again, it would really depend upon what the issue was that they were trying to address. Um, what I would tell somebody with PTSD would be mercine um, with pains, with same thing, um, or CBDs. Um, somebody that has cancer or has um, arthritis or fibromyalgia or, you know, body aches, pains, joints, so on and so forth like that, CBD is wonderful. Obviously, it's fantastic for um, seizures, epilepsy. Um, we're finding great works in it and also in autism. Um you know, so you really have to curtail around each individual patient at that point in time. Um, yeah, well, I mean, it brings us to kind of the master question of it all in that to what degree do you think that cannabinoid therapy as a general term needs to be individualized? And I guess maybe a specific way of phrasing that is, you know, like people will hear that a certain strain is good for something. Maybe let's just say depression. Do you think that someone with depression should should look and try to get those ones that are well-known? Or at the end of the day, you're still going to have to do some individual searching for what just kind of clicks with you? Yeah, no, I would definitely start with um, popular strains that are known for and see if those work for you. And then um, if those don't work for you um, or parts of it works and parts of it doesn't, you know, like the onset is great, but then towards the end, you're too couch locked or whatever, you know, maybe you need to move more towards, instead of a 70-30 indica sativa, maybe you need to go to a 60-40 or something to that effect. Get a little more sativa in there so you're not, the lag down isn't so bad. 
Um, but yeah, I would definitely start out with with known um, strains, genetics that help the uh, symptoms that you're suffering from, um, and kind of go from there. Once again, it's so personalized and individualized that uh, you know, at least on the medical side, I think that it's it's almost overwhelming. I would believe for the patient. And so, what do you think are some medicinal strains that commonly get overlooked from your offerings? Well, we just did some CBD crosses. We uh, acquired a, uh, a Mel Harley suit from Levi, which was OG Ringo's son, who is who's OG Ringo's son. Um, and we did a bunch. We did a few crosses to our normal setup of moms, and they all turned out pretty much two to ones, um, which is fantastic. Um, they're definitely, I'm definitely getting rave reviews from them, from a lot of our patients that that's the ratio that they're looking for. Um, we're getting upwards of 14 to 18% CBD with half that in THC. Um, just depends on what flavors you're looking for, what, um, terpene profiles you're looking for. Um, you know, those are really good. Um, Most of them, you know, so our uh, sonic sonic screwdriver is really good. Um, we get a uh, we find we get a lot of people that um, it helps with opiates quite a bit. Um, there's a couple cannabinoids in there, CB CB10, CB9, um, that are like a opiate molecule, but they're laid back over upon themselves. So we're wondering if maybe it's working as an opiate blocker or similar enough to where it allows you the person to get off opiates to where it stimulates the same receptors there as um but obviously a lot healthier for you yeah okay so one of the last questions i wanted to quickly ask you about a random strain orange cream soda it's another parent I haven't come across it's not in many other crosses what's the backstory on that one Orange cream soda. So um, we had gotten a uh, clone from a gentleman, he, or some seeds from a gentleman he created um, called Daddy's Girl. It was uh, sour diesel by um, MK Ultra, and it was a fantastic strain. And then we crossed it with uh, a New York diesel, and the progeny from that. It was the only orange flavored one out of them. They all kind of had like the soda creamy flavor to them, but that one just was nice and orangey. Um, so yeah, it's 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 not one that's very potent. Um, it's definitely a daytime smoker for a light smoker. Um, it doesn't get you too hyper, it doesn't get you too low, but it's nice and mellow and keeps you uh, pretty pain free and works works quite well and has just this fantastic orange cream soda smell and flavor to it fantastic so can we expect to see it pop up again in the future oh yeah 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 we just crossed there to the uh, doctor who um and uh we're gonna probably we'll wind up being doing we're crossing her to uh our quantum cushmel as well ah nice nice and when can we expect to be able to maybe get that is there still some testing to come yeah oh yeah um, we're, we're slow when it comes to that. You know, we release maybe one or two strains a year. Um, I like to grow 
that strain multiple times. Um, and the reason being is normally I just pop a five pack at a time. Um, the reason being is because that's what most people buy. So I want to see what somebody's getting in a five pack. So I'll pop, I don't know, eight, nine, ten five packs um, and see what I see, you know. Um, so realistically, 40 to 50 seeds at a time pretty much um, just to see what I see. And that takes a while. And we send them out all over the country for testing as well. And then we send them off to our larger operations where they can run 100 to 500 at a time kind of thing just to see how they do all across. So our testing is pretty tight, and we got to see something we really like kind of thing. Yeah, of course. So brings up an interesting point in my mind of pricing seeds. Given you only do, you know, one or two projects a year, it must make pricing hard for you because, you know, there's a lot of work going into it. But I noticed, you know, you guys are certainly no aficionado seeds in regards to your pricing. How do you feel about the whole topic? And do you struggle sometimes to kind of, you know, feel a pri- uh, reach a price that maybe you feel comfortable with in all regards? You know, so I remember when I had to buy seeds and how much they were and how hard it was for me to come up with the money to buy those. So when we decided to come do the seed company thing, I was like, you know, we need to keep it low to where anybody can buy them. We're doing this for the patients. We originally got into it for helping in patients. Patients can't afford $500 10 packs. Um, they're doing good to afford a $100 10 pack. So I, I really see that. And uh, I don't want people to be de- denied good medicine because they can't afford it. Um, you see that in real life bad enough as it is. Once again, if you can get somebody to pay $1,000 for a 10 pack, $800 for a 10 pack, why wouldn't you? You know, I've never attempted it. I don't know that I would. Um, but then again, um, you know, if somebody will pay it, why not? If the market will allow it. Yeah, definitely. So what type of new or just special offerings do you have coming up? And do you have anything, you know, I guess special in regards to say, going to be released at events but maybe not online or anything like that um yeah actually uh probably our next one is going to be our mad scientist back cross um will be our next release uh we're really liking how it's turning out um it's definitely showing what we want to see uh it's cut genotypes down to uh two got short and you got tall so a couple more back crosses and we'll have the mad scientist where we want it um but, you know, it, uh, it definitely has some very beautiful things going on. Uh, so I think that we may release that. Um, we may have a few special things with this down in uh, Emerald Cup. Uh, as I said before, that's the only cup we're doing this year. Um, so, yeah, you know, there's definitely stuff that we do small batches of that, you know, maybe I'll bring some with me just to see if anybody wants any. But the next big release will most likely be our Mad Scientist back cross. Okay, and you got any idea on an ETA of that? You know, we might do a small release at Emerald Cup, um, but we'll see. Um, we're still we, we're waiting on some COAs right at the moment, um, 
But uh, everything else in grow rooms and grows here and grows there has come back very positive. Um, also, we did a uh, um, medicine time, which is Medicine Woman by Time Rack. So uh, that uh, we're liking, a lot of people are liking it as well. So that might come out as well at the same time. We try to do two at a time. Um, possibly Emerald Cup. Um, as far as like a one seeds here now or something like that, I'll get it maybe in the spring. Yeah. Cool. Okay. So on to our last one or two questions before we've got our few little quick fire ones. It's probably a bit of a, a large question. So, you know, feel free to think about it for a minute, but what type of a legacy do you kind of want to leave on the industry or specifically that like, you know, homegrown natural wonders would leave? Uh, <clears throat> I haven't really thought about a legacy. Um, not quite done yet. You know, I think a uh, legacy is not really decided until you're done doing your work. Um, and with the group that I've joined up with now, the Dutch Consulting Company, uh, we're pretty far from being done. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. That's interesting. I, I noticed that. I guess the obvious thing to state is that it's not exclusively Dutch. No, it's not exclusively Dutch, but there are a couple of Dutch members. So, uh, yeah, um, you know, we're, we're a consulting company, and working with Jord is just phenomenal. Uh, he's, he's definitely on another level when it comes to growers, for sure. Um, the, the scale that he's done for a long time um, is just amazing. And the way that he breaks everything down and makes it's pretty cool. It's it, I'm I'm really happy working with this company, and uh, yeah, we're just getting started. So I don't think our legacy will be for a little bit, but you know, we are part of the pioneers in this industry. So hopefully, that'll be the legacy that we helped make sure that everybody got a fair, you know, safe access to medicine and or just recreational marijuana, whatever you want to look at it as. Um, but yeah. Yeah, good answer, good answer. So we'll move on to our last little quick fire questions. So what is the best cannabis you've ever smoked in your life? Oh, good golly. <laughs> um, you know... I don't know. That, that That's a really tough question because, you know, you can have a bed the most flavorful that you've smoked and, you know, the different specific high that you've had. But if I was to kind of look at an all-around combined, uh, I'd have to go back to the mid-'80s and back to the old-school roadkill skunk. I mean, you know, granted, it could have been my point of references from back then. But my father was a grower, so I was growing a bunch of different pot. And when that came to town, it was just, yeah, um, there, we weren't growing anything like that, that's for sure. Um, kind of wish we would have been. But, uh, yeah, I'd have to say the, uh, 80s, the 80s roadkills, the 80s skunk or Afghanis or whatever they were. Yeah, okay. So, kind of a flip side question. What is, in your opinion, the worst strain to have gained a heap of momentum? Purple Punch. 
You <laughs> <laughs> feel like there's not enough punch? Yeah, definitely not. It's purple, but there ain't no punch. Uh, I guess maybe it's good marketing. Yeah, no, completely. Symbiotic is really good about marketing and hiking up strings. Um, when you actually do a lab test on it or whatever, you come to find out that, uh, oh, that's all lipids. That's shining there in the picture, not cannabinoids or anything to that effect. Oh. So, right, it's all lipids and waxes. And that's the problem with a lot of those strains like that. They look great in a picture, um, and they can get hyped up all you want, but when it comes right down to smoking them and doing COAs and doing extractions, well, if you if you de-wax your 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 extractions, um, yeah, your your returns on those strains are super low because it's all waxes and all fatties and lipids. Wow, there you go. All right, onward. So, Desert Island, top three you're going to take with you. <laughs> Seeds or flowers? <laughs> flower. You, it's a good question, right? You've got an infinite infinite supply of flower. No no explanation how, but it just it is. Just yeah, you got to you got to figure out the run out point. Um, <laughs> so, uh, wow, that's a rough one. You know, I, I, I probably sound it, it probably you know. Wow, only three, huh? Um, I used to only give people two. <laughs> what a nice guy! He went up to three. That's nice. <laughs> um, you know, I probably have to throw some Doctor Who in there. Um, the Ken. Um, that's hard for the last one. Yeah. Um, I can see why it was only two. The third one's kind of rough, realistically. <laughs> uh, yeah, I get you. Um, I'd probably want something a little bit more um, more uplifting, so I'd probably go with, uh, I don't know, maybe like a, maybe a haze, an old silver, super silver haze or something to that effect. Yeah, that's a solid pick, solid pick. All right, so what is a cut that you used to have but you've lost and you wish you had it back? Oh, um, yeah, that daddy's girl was pretty nice. Um, and that was that sour diesel by, uh, MK ultra. Um, that was pretty nice. I wish kind of, kind of wish I had that one still. Um, there's too many, <laughs> too, too many, you know, and that's why you just cruise through them hoping that you'll, find one that will replace that in some kind of a way. Um, yeah. We've always been fairly fortunate about keeping backups and, you know, giving to tight circles, so we haven't really lost a whole lot. That hash plant back in the 90s, that would have been fantastic nowadays. Um, but, yeah, those would probably be my main two. Nice answers. So, lucky last question. If you could go back in time, anywhere, any place, presumably to collect some landrace seeds, where and when and what variety? <laughs> wow. Um, 
So probably, um, yeah, the Af- Afghani, the Afghani mountains, the Hindu Kush mountains, um, the Silk Trail, I guess is what they call it a lot. Um, I think that that's where a lot of the really good stuff comes from. But then again, you got the chocolate ties. You've got, you know, the whole continent over there. Can we count that as just one place? <laughs> just broader Asia. Yeah, just a broad, broad, broad spectrum of it. Um, yeah, you know, it's that's a really good question. I've never really thought about that one much. If I could go back in a time, where would I go and what seeds would I want? Um, but yeah, Africa, Afghanistan and uh, the Hindu mountains, pretty, pretty much, I'm thinking. Yeah, good. Two very good and popular answers. So, bringing us to the end of things, do you have any shout-outs or comments you'd like to make? <clears throat> Obviously, a shout-out to Dutch Consulting Company um, for... Uh, providing me with probably the happiest I've been working in a long, long time. Um, obviously, a shout-out to my sons, because without them, we wouldn't be doing what we do. Um, and, of course, their mom, my wife, um, who put, has put up with a lot. Um, other than that, shout-out to all my friends. They all know who they are. Um, thanks for all the support for over the years but yeah fantastic great answer so thank you so much for coming on the show Odie and uh, setting some things straight and dropping some awesome history absolutely anytime it was a pleasure I know we've been working on this for a minute Um, as you said we spoke last year at the Emerald Cup and discussed it then and here we are almost a year later and finally talking so It's been great being on here. Thanks for asking us to be on and uh, allowing us to maybe hopefully clear up some things. Yeah, no problem. I can't wait to smoke some Doctor Who with you again soon. Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm assuming you will be at the Emerald Cup this year. I will. I'll come swing by for sure. Absolutely. Please do. Most definitely. So there you have it, folks. A big, big thank you to Odie for taking the time to drop by. And a huge thank you to you guys for sticking around till the end. As always, Seeds here now, Organic Gardening Solutions, 420 Australia. You know them, you love them. Go show them some love. If you want to get access to a little bit more content and help support the show, make sure to go check out the Patreon page. They're the MVPs. Let's hang out at Emerald Cup, gang. See you.